Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me just echo something Stacy said a few minutes ago about Easter. Easter coming up April the 20th. For those of you that are, that are new, we do Easter every year at True High School. For one simple reason, we don't have, we don't have room here. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to do something this Easter. We do it every Easter, but I'm, I just want to continue to remind you and encourage you. Invite somebody. People are more willing to come on Easter than any other Sunday of the year. And we get an opportunity. I view Easter like this. I get one opportunity with these people to preach Christ to them. And so you invite somebody. Somebody's already, the Lord's already placed somebody in your heart. I can assure you that. If not, you pray about it. Invite somebody to be part of that Easter service at Troop High School, I think April the 20th. Um, let's just pray the Lord does some pretty neat things there, okay? Let me pray for us before we begin. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the opportunity to sing and to pray. And Lord, now we thank you for the opportunity to worship as we study your word. Lord, I pray you would speak truth to our hearts. I pray that this would be compelling and challenging, Lord, and convicting. And I pray, Lord, as we study that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We have any uh, basketball fans out there? Any basketball fans? Nobody. This illustration is going to go well. Okay. How many of you have seen a basketball before in your life? You've seen a, a picture of one? Excellent. This, is, this illustration is designed for you then. Excellent. So this time of year, if you happen to be a basketball fan, it's March Madness. And I enjoy college basketball. I enjoy following the tournament. And so this time of year, every year, the NCAA Selection Committee picks what they tell us at least are the top 64 college basketball teams in America. And they divide them up based on regions. There's the South and the East and the West and I think the Midwest. And in those four regions, there's 16 teams and they're seeded 1 through 16. The best in each region is 1. The worst is 16. They play out their bracket and those winners meet in the final four and then they play. And eventually, in a couple more weekends, we'll know who the national champion is in college basketball for this year. Now, if you enjoy basketball, this is a very exciting time of year. But if you've kind of followed the tournament, what you begin to understand and see, especially leading up to the tournament, is that the media outlets, ESPN and all these people that spend a lot of time talking about the tournament, they focus on the top seeds. And they've got all their experts that explain to us why their pick is going to win it all. Here's why Florida can win it all. They're a top seed. Here's why Wichita State can win it all. Here's why Arizona can win it all. Here's why these good teams have kind of got what it takes to win this tournament. But probably the most compelling part of the tournament isn't necessarily the seeding and the brackets. The most compelling part of the tournament are the underdogs. Because every year there's a team or two or three that kind of rise to the top from a lower, maybe a double-digit seed, and they beat somebody they're not supposed to beat. And when that happens, we call them a Cinderella team. And when the Cinderella team, one of these really low seeds, makes it farther and farther in the tournament, it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger news. Now let's hold that analogy just for a second and let's set it aside because I want to make a point in Christian life. I think as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, in our walk with Him on a regular basis, we have our top seeds. And here's what I mean by that. 
We have the things that we know are most important and have the best chance of growing us in our faith. For example, prayer. Prayer's got to be a top seed, right? It has to be. Worship has got to be a top seed. It's extremely important for us. Bible study needs to be a top seed. Fellowship. And there are all these things that we see that are kind of our top seeds. But I want to talk this morning about a Christian underdog in our walk. And that underdog is fasting. See, we'll talk about the top seeds all the time, right? And their benefit and how important they are. We need to pray. We need to study. We need to worship. We need to fellowship. And all those things are exactly right. We need to be doing all those things. But I believe, and I think the scripture is going to bear out, that if we'll spend time fasting... It may be the most important thing as a follower of Jesus Christ that we could ever do. And I think I can prove that biblically. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look at the underdog this morning of fasting. This is week 11, I believe, in our sermon series that we've entitled Upside Down. And it's a study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We call it upside down because we believe everything Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount is upside down from what the world would say. And let me just kind of give you the the simple understanding of this sermon series as we move forward here this morning. If you're trying to live your life and conform your life to the teaching of the world, you're not meeting the biblical standard. If you're trying to do what the world says and what your peers say and what society says, I think you're missing the truth. Instead, Christ would have us to understand you should conform your life to the teachings and the patterns of the Word of God. And when you do that, it's going to look upside down from the way everybody else lives. Now, one of the ways we've been encouraging you week to week is to remind you of our family devotions that we have. Each week we've got a team that puts together a family devotion based on the sermon for that morning. And I will encourage you, as I've tried to do each week, to take one of those things home, to spend some time with your family studying, reading, moms, dads. It's your responsibility. It's your call to lead your children. And so you take this opportunity to speak truth into their hearts and to pray for them and to lead them in devotion. But this is the, I think, fourth or fifth week now that we've been in chapter 6. And so we're going to review just for a second before we delve into what Christ would show us this morning on fasting in Matthew chapter 6. Several weeks ago we took a look at giving to the needy. If you have your Bibles, you'll notice that there are some headings for each section. The first heading may say giving to the needy. Two weeks ago we looked at kind of general principles of prayer. Last week we studied the Lord's Prayer. And this week we're going to examine the idea of fasting. Let me just define fasting for you before we move on so there's no confusion. Fasting in its simplest terms and in its biblical terms is the abstinence from food and drink for a period of time. It's the idea that I'm going to set aside eating for a certain period of time. That could be for one meal. That could be for one day. That could be for three days. That could be for a week. That's between you and the Lord. But biblically and simply enough, fasting is when we say we're not going to eat for a period of time. Some people have dietary restrictions. They can't fast. They can't go without eating for a certain period of time. I would encourage you, if you're in that category, fast on other things. Maybe you could fast on television for a week. Now, that'd be difficult, right? Maybe you could fast on the Internet. Let's get real radical and not use our cell phones for a week. Could we do something like that? Is that that possible? Can we do that? It's almost like a lung for us now. If we don't have it, we die, right? We have to have this device with us at all times. 
But biblically speaking, we should go without food for a period of time when we fast. Now, fasting, I believe, is probably the least practiced and maybe the most misunderstood of the spiritual disciplines. We understand prayer. We talk about prayer. We understand Bible study. We talk about Bible study. We understand worship. We talk about worship. But when it comes to fasting, it's something very few followers of Christ do on any sort of a regular basis. In fact, John Stott, who was a very well-known pastor, theologian, said it like this. I think he hits the nail on the head. Here is a passage of Scripture which is commonly ignored. I suspect that some of us live our Christian lives as if these verses have been torn out of our Bibles. Many Christians lay stress on daily prayer, on sacrificial giving, but few lay any stress on fasting. Yet it's interesting, if you were to spend any time studying history, if you were to read some of the great theologians of the past, you would recognize that many of them on a regular basis would fast. For example, Martin Luther fasted. John Calvin fasted. John Knox, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry Charles Finney, Andrew Murray, Martin Lloyd-Jones, on and on and on the list goes. And I think what we need to understand about fasting, as we're going to see here in just a few minutes, is that biblically fasting over and over and over again is linked very closely with our growth in Christ. Now we saw last week in the Lord's Prayer that Christ gave us a very specific model for what praying ought to look like. What should a prayer look like? How should we pray? Christ tells us this then is how you should pray and he gives us the Lord's Prayer. But when we look at fasting this morning, he's not going to give us a very specific model. He's not going to be as in-depth as he was with the Lord's Prayer. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 6. We're going to study the truth that Christ gives us there, but then we're going to branch out. And we're going to examine some other biblical truth that will help us better figure out and understand what fasting ought to look like in our life. So Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin this morning in verses 16 through 18. These are the words of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. He's already talked about giving to the needy. He's already talked about praying. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you're going to notice a pattern here that I'm going to point out in just a second that he gives us again in fasting. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now here's the first truth, if you're taking notes this morning. The first truth that we need to see from this text is this. Fasting should bring glory to God. Fasting, first and foremost, above all other things, ought to bring glory to God. Now, if you've got your Bibles, and I know not all of you do, but if you've got your Bibles, I want to point something out to you. I think it's very interesting. If you were to look back in Matthew chapter 6, I'm going to read some verses to you, and I want to help you understand a pattern that Christ is trying to establish for us. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Jesus says, When you give to the needy. That's how he begins. Then in verse 3, Jesus says, When you give to the needy. And then in verse 5, Christ says, when you pray. And then in verse 6, Christ says, when you pray. And then in verse 7, Christ says, when you pray. 
And then in verse 16, Christ says, when you fast. In verse 17, Christ says, when you fast. There's this sense over and over and over again that we should just be doing these things because they're a normal part of our walk. It's just fascinating to me. Christ doesn't say you should give to the needy. He expects you to do it because it's a normal part of your walk. Christ doesn't say you should be praying because he just expects you to do it because it's a normal part of your walk. Christ doesn't command us now in verses 16, 17, and 18 to fast. Why? Because he just assumes we're going to do it because it's a normal part of our walk. I wouldn't have to say to any of you, when you go to sleep tonight, you need to do this or command you to go to sleep tonight. Why? Because I know you're going to do it. It's just part of our routine. Jesus, when he's speaking to the disciples and his followers on the Sermon on the Mount, gives this very clear understanding that there's this expectation that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are expected to fast. So the first thing you ought to be doing if you're walking through this process with us and if you're trying to live your life upside down is you need to examine your walk with the truth of the walk in Scripture and ask yourself this question, am I fasting? Do I fast on a regular basis? Have I ever fasted? Because as a follower of Christ, it's awfully clear in here, if we believe that giving to the needy is important, and we do, if we believe that prayer is important, and we do, then we should also see in this context that fasting is equally as important as prayer and giving to the needy, right? And yet, as John Stott has so well said, some of us have just kind of torn those pages out from Scripture. But I want you to notice what Christ does for us here. He gives us a clue of what fasting ought to look like. Christ says, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's this sense here. That fasting is not about what people think about you. Fasting is instead about bringing glory to God. Now this is another pattern we've seen already in chapter 6. We've seen that Christ has said to us, when you give to the needy, don't do it so that other people can see you. Don't, don't write out the check and smile for the camera as you hand it to them, hoping somebody's going to post it on Facebook later that night so you can like it and comment on it, right? When you give to the needy, you need to do it in such a way that Christ is honored. When you pray, he gives us the very specific example of the Pharisees that would stand in the street corner and would pray in such a way that everybody could hear them and think they were spiritual. Christ says, when you pray, you don't need to pray like that. You need to pray in such a way that you go into your closet, you close the door, and you pray to the Lord in secret because he hears you in secret. It's not about bringing glory to yourself. It's about bringing glory to God. It's the same thing with fasting. Now I want to warn you because if you don't fast on a regular basis, you're going to have a tendency to do this. You're going to fast for a period of time and you're going to be so overwhelmed by hungry, by hunger, that it's going to be hard for you not to look sad. So here's what you have to guard against. You don't want to show up to work the morning you're fasting with that sad face, hoping someone will ask you what's wrong. Fasting today. Fasting. I hadn't eaten in two and a half hours. I'm starving. (laughs) I'm giving myself up for the Lord because I'm so spiritual, right? 
Christ warns us against that. In fact, he says, when you do this, put oil on your head and wash your face, specifically, verse 18, so it will not be obvious that you're fasting. Why? Because when we fast in such a way that everybody sees us and asks us about it, guess who receives the glory? We do. I'm just so spiritual, I just can't help myself, right? I'm just so godly. This is just kind of who I am in Christ. When we do those things, we receive glory. Christ says, be careful. You need to fast in such a way that nobody even knows you're doing it. You need to look and act the way you always look and act. Why? So the Lord will receive glory. So we see two kind of clear things here in the Sermon on the Mount. The first clear thing is we ought to be fasting on some sort of a regular basis. The second thing is that when we fast... We should do it in such a way that the Lord receives glory. But here's the difficult thing about fasting in this text. Christ doesn't give us any more specifics. He doesn't tell us when to fast or how long to fast or reasons to fast. And it's very interesting to me because when you examine chapter 6, you begin to understand that some of these things are obvious. Here's what I mean. Christ says you need to be giving to the needy on a regular basis. That's obvious to us. We get that. There are people in need. I need to give to those people and help them. That's obvious. Christ says you need to pray on a regular basis. That's obvious to us. We know as followers we need to pray. And when we do, Christ hears our cries and answers our prayers. We get that. But when we come to fasting, we begin to ask ourselves the question, why should I fast? I mean, I know I need to give to the needy and help those that are hurting. I know I, know I need to pray. Those are obvious. But fasting? Why should I fast? Well, let's step out for just a few minutes from Matthew chapter 6. And let's examine some other scripture that will help us better understand the importance of fasting. And I'm going to give you a biblical truth before we move on. And then I'm going to support it with these verses. Here's the second truth I want you to understand this morning about fasting. Number one, fasting should bring glory to God. But number two, fasting combined with prayer is powerful and helps us encounter God. Fasting combined with prayer is powerful and helps us encounter God. Now, fasting is seen all through the Old and the New Testament. In fact, I could spend several sermons preaching about fasting in the Old Testament. I could spend several sermons preaching about fasting in the New Testament. We don't have time to do that this morning, so I'm going to hit a few of the highlights. And I want you to notice with me, if you would, a pattern. Something that seems to occur in each one of these verses. The first example, and I don't want you to flip there, but I want you to make note of if you're taking notes, is Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the wall builder of the Old Testament, you probably remember the story. Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. And the Bible gives us this very interesting glimpse into his heart in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. He says, when I heard these things, when I heard that the wall had been destroyed and torn down, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, and now listen to this, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah needed to hear from the Lord, when Nehemiah needed to see results and he desperately wanted the Lord to work, he combined prayer with fasting. Daniel, you may remember the story of Daniel. He was taken from Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar. He was exiled and his prayer was that he would get to go home pretty soon after that. Well, he recognizes through the Lord speaking to him, that it's going to be at least 70 years before Jerusalem is freed. And so we read when he finds that out in Daniel chapter 9. He's just realized through the words of the Lord that he's not going to be able to go home. The Bible says, I, this is Daniel speaking, turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition in fasting. 
and in sackcloth and ashes. There's the sense here again that when Daniel needed a miracle from the Lord, when Daniel needed to hear from the Lord, when Daniel wanted his prayers answered in a very powerful way, he combined this idea of prayer with fasting. Why? Because it's effective. And when we do it, we encounter the Lord. Fast forward to the New Testament. Again, there are plenty of Old Testament examples I didn't cover. Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, speaking of the New Testament church, the first century church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed... They placed their hands on them and they sent them off. There's this sense here that when we fast and we combine that with prayer, we hear from the Lord. Acts 14, 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with, you want to guess what it is? You want to guess the combination? Prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Jesus fasted. Jesus combined prayer with fasting. Jesus even told his disciples, sometimes you need the faith that only comes from prayer and fasting to do certain things. We see these examples over and over and over and over again that prayer and fasting is a very powerful combination. Now you may remember like I do when I was a kid and the science fair rolled around. And you had to build something for the science fair. I think everybody at some point in their life built a volcano. You remember building a volcano for a science fair? You remember? And when you build a volcano, in order to make it erupt, what do you have to do? Baking soda and what? Right. Now, separately, they've got their own uses and they're good, but when you combine those two things together, what happens? You get this powerful eruption, don't you? Now, if you're under the age of 25, it's now... Pepsi and Mentos, right? That's the new combination. So you got your volcano a little taller than normal to get the two liter under there, right? And you take the top off and drop three Mentos and it just explodes. Have you done that? You should see that. It's pretty phenomenal. There are certain things that we understand when we combine them together, we get a powerful combination. Gasoline and fire is a powerful combination, right? If you're in a lot of pain, Tylenol and Motrin, that's a powerful combination, right? If you have kids especially... Moon pies and RC, when you put those together, right? (laughs) We understand that there are powerful combinations. That's what we get when we pray and fast. So here's a question I want to challenge you with. You ready for this? What blessings are we missing because we haven't prayed and fasted? What's the Lord not doing in our hearts? What's the Lord not doing in our lives? What's the Lord not doing in our church? Because we've said to the Lord, you know, this idea of fasting is kind of difficult. (laughs) It's something I don't really understand, and I sure do like food, so Lord, I'm just going to kind of skip that. I think we'd be challenged to understand the teaching of fasting. But to understand scripturally, we combine that with prayer, the Lord speaks. Thirdly, we need to continue to move forward. Here's another biblical truth. Fasting is a form of self-denial that leads to obedience to God. Fasting is a form of self-denial and it leads us to obedience in God. Now, we don't like to deny ourselves, do we? 
In the world we live in, they say to you, don't deny yourself, instead gratify yourself. <laughs> if it feels good, do it, right? I mean, whatever you want to do, the, the, the sky's the limit. If you like it, just do it. Gratify yourself. Don't deny yourself. That's upside down. Denying yourself is really, it's upside down from what the world says. But here's the truth of Scripture. Christ says to us, if we're going to be true followers... If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we need to what? You remember the phrase? Deny ourselves. Take up our cross and follow him. Now see, here's what denying ourselves can do. Now watch this. Follow this progression with me, okay? When we deny ourselves something, it leads to a form of suffering in our minds at least, doesn't it? I wanted to do this. I'm not going to do this. It causes me to suffer. Some of the suffering is pretty easy. Some of it is great. Sometimes we allow ourselves to deny just a little bit so the suffering isn't great. Sometimes we deny ourselves greatly and the suffering is even greater. There's this very interesting, and if we're very honest with each other, this very scary precedent in Scripture that we see on a pretty regular basis. When people deny themselves for Christ, they suffered for Christ. The Bible says they learned in those moments true obedience. You say, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, let me just prove it to you. Here's what Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 says. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, this is Christ we're talking about, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now watch this in verse 8. Although he was a son, we're speaking of Christ here, he learned obedience from what he suffered. First Peter 4, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore Christ suffered in his body. Therefore arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Here's the progression. Watch this. I'm going to fast just a little bit. I'm going to deny myself. When I deny myself what I want, it's going to cause me just a little bit of suffering. And the amount of time I fast will depend on the amount of suffering that I'm going to receive. And as I deny myself and I fast and I suffer just a little bit for Christ, for his glory, I begin to understand obedience a little bit more. Lord, I should be willing on a regular basis to give up this to suffer here for your sake. It's worth it. You're worth it. Wayne Grudem said it like this. I think he captured it pretty well. He's a very noted theologian. He said, fasting is a good exercise in self-discipline. As we refrain from eating food which we would ordinarily desire, it also strengthens our ability to refrain from sin. If we train ourselves in the small suffering of fasting willingly, we will be better able to accept other suffering for the sake of righteousness. Fasting is a continual reminder that just as we sacrifice some personal comfort to the Lord by not eating, so we must continually sacrifice all of ourselves to Him. So here's the question we ought to live with on a regular basis as followers of Jesus Christ. Am I willing to deny myself for Christ, suffer whatever amount of suffering I have to have in order to show him obedience? That's the question we have to answer. And I believe with all my heart that the way we answer that question will 
greatly determine how the Lord is going to use us in our lives. Lord, I'm not really willing to give anything up, and I sure don't want to suffer. And Okay, I'm not going to be used by Christ. Or, Lord, I'm literally willing to give you all. I'm willing to suffer if I have to because I want to be obedient and I want you to use me in powerful ways. Isn't it interesting that the thing that Christ commands us to deny ourselves with in this context is one of the things we enjoy the most, food? I mean, why couldn't it be something I didn't like, right? I mean, why why couldn't I fast on something that wasn't so good, right? I mean, we we live in a world and in our culture where food is really good, And a lot of the really good food isn't good for us, right? I mean, the fried stuff tastes great. It's terrible for us. And yet the Lord says, if you're you're willing to follow me, if you're willing to seek me, you need to deny yourself. And one small way we can do that is through fasting. Number four, I need to finish up. Number four, fasting brings humility. Fasting not only leads us to obedience, but it makes us humble before the Lord. Now, we're told over and over in Scripture, for example, James 4.10 says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Great. So how do I humble myself? Because humility is not a characteristic that we're familiar with. That's upside down from the world, right? You need to be boastful. You need to build yourself up. You need to sell yourself. You need to market yourself. You need to tell everybody how good you are and how smart you are. Christ says you need to be humble about who you are. You need to have a servant's heart. And so it's so great. So I'm, I'm supposed to humble myself to be upside down, which is vastly different from what the world says. How am I going to humble myself? Well, listen to some of the examples in Scripture. Psalm 35, 13. Speaking of people that have been the enemy, verse 12 says, They repay me evil for good, and they leave my soul forlorn. Yet when they were ill, right? These are my enemies. When they were ill, I put on sackcloth, and I humbled myself with a fast. Fasting will humble us. In the book of Ezra, a fast was proclaimed in chapter 8 so that, I'm reading right out of the truth of Scripture, so that we might humble ourselves. You say, how can fasting humble me? Here's how. You think you can do all these things. You think you can accomplish all this stuff. You think you're powerful and smart and capable. Go without eating food for three or four days. Right? I'm pretty strong, right? I'm in good shape. I can do these things. I work out on a regular basis. Do those things and don't eat for three days and see how reliant you are on food. Fasting helps us very clearly understand that we are not in and ourselves able to do anything. We rely on other things and other people and ultimately it points to our reliance on Christ. One scholar said it like this, fasting increases our sense of humility and dependence on the Lord. Our hunger and physical weakness continually remind us how we are not really strong in ourselves, but we need the Lord. So fasting is seen as something we ought to be doing on a regular basis. It leads us to self-denial and obedience. It helps us encounter God. It helps us bring humility into our lives. It helps us encounter Him in mighty and powerful ways. And so there's this huge body of evidence back here that leads us to a very simple conclusion as we're going to end up this morning. We should be fasting, right? And we should combine our time of fasting with prayer. And so here's my challenge to you moving forward. I'm going to challenge you as followers of Jesus Christ. If you're going to live your life upside down to the truth of Scripture, you need to fast. 
Now, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how long you should fast. I'm not going to tell you how often you should fast. I'm not going to tell you even when you should fast. And I'll encourage you based on your, your, your health and dietary restrictions, maybe talk to your doctor or maybe don't even fast on food if you have to eat certain things. But I'm going to encourage you at some point in the future to fast. And when you do that, I'm going to encourage you, based on the truth of Scripture, to combine that with prayer. Because we should be willing, as we look at all Christ did for us, to give up just a little bit and to suffer for Him, to demonstrate our obedience so He will use us in mighty and powerful ways. See, I think when we combine prayer and fasting, it's a very, very powerful combination. And I believe with all my heart, and I want you to hear me here, if the followers of Jesus Christ were serious about prayer and fasting on a regular basis, I'll promise you we would turn the world upside down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, it's compelling and it's challenging, Lord, and it's convicting. Because fasting is not something that that many believers do on a regular basis, but it's clear, it's right there in Scripture. It's spoken of in the same passage as prayer and giving to the needy, Lord. It's got that much importance in Christ's mind. He taught on it on the Sermon on the Mount, Father. So I pray you would just give us the ability, first of all, to receive this teaching to receive the truth of this teaching, Father. But then I pray you would give us the strength and the ability, Lord, to go forward, to move forward, denying ourselves and fasting and praying to seek your heart, Lord, to hear from you. And then, Lord, I pray that as we do these things, you would honor your word. And as we pray and as we fast, you would do mighty and powerful things in our hearts, in our church, in our community in our world, Father. Not so others will see us for who we are, but so your glory would be seen and known to all the nations of the world. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity if you'll come and pray at the altar. The altar is always open. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and accept Christ, or you want to join the church. This is your time now to respond as we sing together. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.